Don't you think we ought to make up some animal noises in case we get separated? Let me just close this conversation by saying you are one unique individual. Holy cow! By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then, hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Now, as regular listeners know, I have this fascination with language and words and the meanings and origins of things. So today we're talking about language and words and meanings and origins of things. We've done this before and we're doing it again because I love this stuff. So I hope you do too. And if you don't, well, there's always next week. But today we're going to talk about phrases, some call them idioms, but phrases and sayings that we used to say when I was a kid, or that my grandparents would say, or that my parents would say, that we don't really use too much anymore. You still hear them on occasion, but not as much as you used to. And it's partly because the origins of them don't mean anything to us anymore. So I figured I'd dig into some of these old sayings and just explain where they came from. And maybe we can revive some of these. Because I'm all for using archaic and outdated expressions, because I'm an old dude. It's what I do. Now, I'm going to start off with the phrase that inspired me to do this episode today. And you guys know me. I, I try to keep my colorful metaphors relatively clean and free of profanity. But this is one of those phrases that when I was growing up, everybody heard, everybody knew, everybody used. You still hear it on occasion, but not like you used to. Built like a brick shithouse. Now, I know that phrase. Everybody around me grew up using that phrase. It was always in the context of, Oh, did you see her? She's built like a brick shithouse. Now, for me, I only ever heard it used with women. But looking into it, it was also used for men as well. And you'd be right to wonder, well, why is it good to be compared to a shithouse? For those who don't realize, a shithouse is basically an outhouse. Now, we don't have too many outhouses anymore. But back in the day, before there was indoor plumbing, you would dig a hole in your backyard. You'd build a house up around it, and when you had to go to the bathroom, you'd go out to the outhouse. It was the outhouse because it was out back. And usually the houses were constructed of a few boards, a roof over the top, just enough to protect you from the elements while you were out there doing your business. But if you're talking about a brick shithouse or a brick outhouse, that's a well-constructed, well-built structure. A brick outhouse is something you want. The wind's not going to blow it down. You have a little insulation from the elements. A brick shithouse is a good thing to have because it's really well built. So when you hear about a man or a woman built like a brick shithouse, they're pretty well built. By the way, if you know the song by the Commodores, the Commodores, an old music group from the 70s, Lionel Richie used to be the front man for them. They had a song in the 70s called Brick House. Now, there's no such thing as a brick house as that reference. Brick House is really a song about a brick shithouse, but they just never said that because they couldn't. But if you listen to the music and you listen to the lyrics where they sing, she's a brick house, that's exactly what they're talking about. Now, another phrase that I grew up with that we used to use all of the time, and you still hear it occasionally, but not nearly as much as you used to. It's the phrase, you're going to open up a can of worms. Now, basically what it means is, if you do that, you're going to uncover problems, you're going to make things more complicated, you're going to find issues we don't want to deal with, don't open up that can of worms. And unlike the brick outhouse, the can of worms idiom is really easy to understand if you've ever gone fishing. If you use worms as bait, 
You put them in a can, you put them in a plastic container, you put them in whatever you put them in to take them to your fishing hole. If you open up that can and you look inside, the worms are all tangled up. They're crawling all over each other. There's dirt everywhere. There's wriggling everywhere. Trying to find one worm in that mess is a problem. That's what opening up a can of worms is like. You're just opening up problems. You got to find the thing. You don't want to open up a can of worms. So don't. Especially if it's 4.30 at the end of the day. Don't open up that can of worms. Wait till Monday. Another one we had was Close But No Cigar. Now that spawned a couple of others, which I'll talk about too. But Close But No Cigar is something I picked up from my parents. Well, you were close, but no cigar. And that's a reference to the competitions or the carnival booths that they had in the old days. You'd have a shooting competition where you'd have to throw darts at a board to pop a balloon. And you'd have the guy in charge of the competition or the booth attendant keeping track of where your throws or your shots were. And the prize, especially in those shooting competitions in the old days, was a cigar. Because a nice cigar was a good prize back in the day. So if you hit the target, you'd win the cigar. And if you were close, but didn't hit the target, close, but no cigar. Now, of course, close, but no cigar gives us close only counts in horseshoes. I mean, it's a logical progression. But where does that one come from? Well, when I was growing up, we played horseshoes in the backyard. If you've never played horseshoes, it's kind of a basic outdoor lawn game where there's a stake at one end of the yard and you actually have horseshoes, those metal shoes they put on horses, and you throw them at the stake. And you get points if your horseshoe hits the stake or if you're within a horseshoe's length of the stake. And that's why close counts in horseshoes, because you don't have to hit the stake to get points. It doesn't count in the shooting competition, so close but no cigar applies there. But in horseshoes, you can be close. Now, we've also added close also counts in hand grenades. You don't actually have to hit the target with a hand grenade as long as you're close. I guess that emphasizes the point that sometimes close counts. Then there's always some smartass who has to say, well, close counts in shaving too. But that's an entirely different thing. That's more of a dad joke than an actual idiom. Another one we used to hear was, you're cruising for a bruising. That would often be parents telling kids to settle down, stop being a jerk. Because you're cruising for a bruising. You can still hear that one sometimes these days. Less so from parents now. Apparently it's bad form for parents to threaten their children with child abuse. Go figure. But you can still hear some knucklehead say, huh, You're cruising for a bruising, pal. But that comes from back in the day. When cruising was just something that people would do. They'd go cruising around town, either on foot or in their cars. Checking out the scene. Trying to find some action. Looking for a good club to go to. But... If you were looking for trouble, the natural rhyme, you're cruising for a bruising, makes perfect sense. Now, how many of you always like to put in your two cents worth? How many of you know what that means? Well, two cents is basically your opinion. Whether it's asked for or not, you have your two cents worth. Now, the two cents comes from a British phrase that relates to two pence or tuppence. And two pence really has very little value, so it's almost unimportant. And so that's why two cents worth has taken on the meaning of an opinion with mm, very little value. So what you'll say when somebody's putting in their two cents worth is, all right, who wants to put in their two cents worth? You're asking for someone's opinion, whether you care for it or not, and you're going to make the ultimate decision anyway. Or you might walk up to a conversation and say, let me put in my two cents for whatever it's worth. That's the phrase you throw in at the end. Here's my two cents for whatever it's worth. That's acknowledging that you want to share your opinion and you recognize that they may disregard it anyway. That's usually from the guy who needs to have his voice heard, whether anybody else wants to hear it or not. Now, this next one is one that my mom used, 
If you are going out to paint the town red, you're going out to have a good time. You're going out to party. You're going to go out to have fun. Well, let's go out and paint the town red. Now, I always knew that that's what it meant, but I didn't know where it came from. Because why does painting the town red mean you're going out to have a good time? I mean, a lot of these idioms do make sense, but paint the town red just didn't seem to make logical sense to me. So I started digging around on paint the town red. I mean, there's some old slang phraseology where if you were going out to get drunk, you'd be painting your nose red because your nose tends to turn red after you've had a lot of drinks. So that might have something to do with it. Some of the sources say that it comes from painting the sky red by celebrating with fireworks or even in the older times, bonfires that would make the sky appear red. People were celebrating at the end of the day with big bonfires, painting the sky red. Naturally, I like the one that involves cowboys in the Old West. They're in town getting drunk and having a rowdy time, and anybody who interferes with them is going to get shot up with blood spraying everywhere, thus painting the town red. It's not entirely clear that that's the basis for the phrase either, but I like that one. But you don't hear people talk about going downtown and painting the town red anymore. Maybe it's because nobody knows where it comes from. But if you hear paint the town red, that's what it means. Go have a good time. Now, we all know that person who will just talk and talk and talk and talk, and we just can't get them to shut up. We used to say that that person could talk someone's ears off, and it's just because you've heard them talk so, so much, your ears are just ready to fall off. They can't take it anymore. But somehow that spun off to some other idioms, too. I mean, the one that I say to this day is, he could talk the legs off a table. And I'm not sure where I picked that one up. I know one of the other idioms is... He could talk the legs off an iron pot. He could talk the hind legs off a dog. And when I looked into this, it seems they have their start with an old English phrase, talking a horse's hind leg off. And from what I've been able to figure out, it's not a literal talking the leg off, obviously. But it has something to do with the fact that the person who's talking talks so much that the horse, which generally doesn't sit down, is so exhausted that the hind legs just collapse underneath its weight. It just can't stand there anymore, which actually kind of makes sense. I mean, my ears aren't going to fall off because you've talked so much, although it feels like they may want to. But how that evolved into talking the legs off of an iron pot or talking the legs off of a table, I have no idea, but that's where it comes from. One of the other things I realized as I was putting this list together is we have a bunch of these idioms that relate to salt, and we don't use very many of them anymore. I think the one you hear the most often still to this day is if you have to take something with a grain of salt. Now, if you're listening to somebody talk and you're told, well, take whatever he says with a grain of salt, that means be skeptical of it. Maybe you can't trust what he's saying. As with many of these idioms, it's not entirely clear why that phrase came to mean be skeptical, but that's what it means. There's some history that suggests that salt was used as an antidote to certain poisons, So if you would take the poison and a grain of salt, you wouldn't die. One of the other theories is taking a grain of salt with your food makes it taste better. So if you have some food and a little salt, it makes it go down easier. Again, not skepticism, but the salt does improve the flavor, so it makes it easier to swallow, I guess, is the best way to put it. So if somebody's telling you something that's a little hard to believe, a little hard to swallow, take it with a grain of salt, makes it easier to go down. That's probably where it comes from. But we don't take things with a grain of salt so much anymore. We also don't say somebody is worth their salt anymore. When I was growing up, somebody would be worth their salt, which means they were worth their paycheck, worth what they were doing. Whatever reward they get, they're worth their salt. And this really goes back to the days when salt was used as a barter tool. 
Before there was money, they used spices, among other things, to trade. And so somebody who was worth their salt were worth whatever you had to pay them in salt. For example, if somebody did the job you hired them for and you were paying them in salt rather than in cash, and they did a good job, they were worth the salt you had to pay them. Another salt phrase we don't use too much, calling somebody the salt of the earth. It used to be if somebody was a very good, very honest, very dependable person, you'd say, he's the salt of the earth. He'd give you the shirt off his back. That actually comes from the Bible, believe it or not. If you know your Bible and you know Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talked about people being the salt of the earth. Now, I'm not going to drill down and go into the details about how that's probably a misinterpretation of what Jesus said. This isn't that kind of podcast episode. I guess we could do one of those at some point. How the Bible is misinterpreted and misapplied in so many ways. But that's not what this is about today. This is more about origins and meanings. So that's where the meaning of the salt of the earth comes from, the Bible. But if you ever hear somebody described as the salt of the earth, it means they're a good person. And you can thank Jesus for that. Now, have you ever heard of anybody talking about putting something on the back burner? If you're giving something a low priority, you put it on the back burner. That's what putting it on the back burner means. You're not paying as much attention to it. Stuff on the front burner gets the immediate attention. The back burner stuff, that's low priority. It comes from cooking, obviously. If you know anything about a stove, you've got front burners and back burners. The front burners are where you're doing your active stuff. You're browning the meat. You're sautéing the vegetables. The back burner is where you can simmer the stew or keep the sauce on a low heat. You don't have to pay immediate attention to it. It's on the back burner on a low heat. It won't burn. It just does its little cooking thing back there. So that's where putting something on the back burner comes from. You don't have to pay immediate attention to it. Keep it on a low heat. Be aware of it. But it doesn't have a high priority. Now, how about bells and whistles? Have you heard people talk about bells and whistles? We used to talk about bells and whistles all of the time. Sometimes in a positive sense and sometimes in a negative sense. Now, if you were being positive, you would say, I just bought a new car. It's awesome. It has all of the new bells and whistles. Touchscreen navigation, Bluetooth connections, automatic brakes, airbags everywhere. Those are all the new bells and whistles, and I am so excited about it. But you could also use bells and whistles negatively. Man, they haven't changed that computer at all. They just added some bells and whistles. Now, what that's supposed to mean is... Little attachments, little accessories, little add-ons to the original product that make it even more appealing than the new product is. And that comes from back in the day when bicyclists in the 1800s, when they first invented bicycles, they would add bells or whistles to the bicycle so that as they're driving along, the people would have something to make noise to warn pedestrians that a bike is coming through. Now, these were pretty important additions because bikes... You have to think about this. Bikes didn't exist before the 1880s or so. So if a bicycle came scooting along the sidewalk and you weren't looking for it, you could get run over really easily. So they would sell the bikes with bells or horns or whistles. Any kind of noisemaker to alert the pedestrians that an idiot on a bike is coming through at a high rate of speed. So when you hear people talk about all the bells and whistles, that's where it comes from. Now, if you've ever heard the phrase, the shoe is on the other foot now... That basically means there's been a reversal of circumstances. For instance, if the radio announcer says, The shoe is on the other foot now as the 20-year police officer is arrested for drug trafficking. The police officer, who's supposed to be enforcing the laws, is being arrested for breaking the laws. The shoe is on the other foot. Now, where does that come from? Well, until the mid-1800s, shoemakers made shoes that were basically not specific for either foot. 
There was no left shoe and right shoe. It was just shoes. It was only in the 1800s that they started making shoes specific for the left and the right feet. So when they started making these foot-specific shoes, and if you put it on the other foot, it was very uncomfortable. So the expression putting the shoe on the other foot comes from the fact that you didn't want to be uncomfortable with your shoes on the wrong feet. I mean, it seems kind of weird by today's standards because all we've ever known is shoes for the correct feet. But that's where the expression comes from. Another one we still have, although it also seems to be fading, is blowing off steam. I have to go to the gym to blow off some steam. Please, can we get the kids to play outside so they can blow off some steam? Anytime you need to relieve stress or tension or anger, it's called blowing off steam. Why is that? It comes from the use of steam engines, steam generators, steam furnaces. If you've ever worked with steam, you know that the pressure builds up in the pipes, in the furnace, in the water heater, wherever you have the steam coming from, that steam pressure builds up. And if you don't let the steam out... If you don't use a little valve on the motor, on the furnace, on the boiler, whatever it is, the steam engine will blow up. So they have this little relief valve where you blow off steam so your engine doesn't blow up. Basically, the valve eases pressure. And that's where the blowing off steam phrase comes from. Okay, I got one more for you. It's time to pay the piper. You don't hear that one too much anymore. But when you do hear it, it's in the context of facing the consequences for some action that you did or something that you said. You committed the crime. Now it's time to pay the piper. Well, why is it time to pay the piper? What the hell does that mean? That phrase actually comes from an old poem that's been turned into a story, into animated cartoons, into story books. The Pied Piper of Hamlin. Now, I grew up with this story. We had it on a vinyl record. We would listen to it when I was growing up. I also read the story. I read the poem. The Pied Piper of Hamelin is an old children's tale that is like second nature to me because I grew up with it. But you might not know it. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story to you. I'm going to give you the gamer dude version of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, but you can go look it up if you want to. It takes place in a German town called Hamelin, which was overrun by rats. The rats were everywhere. They swarmed all over everything. They ate everything. They damaged everything. And nothing the townspeople could do would get rid of the damn rats. Then one day, some guy wanders into town with a gold pipe. The guy approaches the mayor of the town, and he says to the mayor that he's freed other towns from plagues, from bats and beetles, and if the mayor will pay him, he'll be able to get rid of the rats for this town too. And the people were so desperate to get rid of these rats, they promised him a whole bunch of money if he would just get the rats out of town. They even promised to overpay him as long as the rats were gone. Now, the piper was no dummy. He said, sure, I'll do that. And he got up the next morning, began playing his pipe, played some rat love song of some kind. I don't know what the tune was, but he played something that made the rats follow him. And every single rat in the town followed the piper. He led them out of town. Boom, no more rats. So the rats are gone. The piper comes back, approaches the mayor and says, all right, where's my money? And the mayor said, you know, the rats are gone. You'll be lucky to get anything from us now. They wouldn't even pay the original fee that the guy asked. Never mind the extra money they promised him. And the piper said, dudes, you're going to regret this. If you don't pay me, if you don't pay the piper, you guys are going to regret this. And the people went, eh, rats are gone. Doesn't matter to us. See you later. Bye. Well, the piper was rightfully pissed. And so the next morning, as the town was asleep, the piper started playing his pipe again. Although this time, the only people who could hear him in Hamlin were the children. And all of the children got out of bed and followed the piper out of town. And the piper led all of the children of Hamlin into the mountains. 
He led them into a cave, a landslide happened, sealed the mouth of the cave, and the children were never heard from again, except for one little kid who escaped and told the town what happened. Town was never able to rescue the kids, and they were lost forever. So it was time to pay the piper, and the town refused to do so, so they faced the consequences. That's where pay the piper comes from. And when it's time to pay the piper, you should probably just pay the piper. So there you have it, a whole bunch of new words and phrases that you can work into your vocabulary. I would probably hold off on complimenting too many people as being a brick shit house. That's probably best kept to yourself. But you can certainly tell people, oh, close, but no cigar. And I think it's okay to go out and paint the town red whenever you want to, within reason, and these days with a mask and social distancing, especially if you need to blow off steam these days. But don't forget, when you get to town, make sure to pay the piper when you're supposed to. These are important lessons you've learned today. I hope you take them to heart. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate all the time that you spend here. It means the world to me, and I can't thank you enough. You guys are the best. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.